Uh, if you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn to Ephesians uh, chapter 4. We are uh, in the second half of the book starting this morning. So I'm excited for uh, what the Lord might have for us in these uh, upcoming months as we study, finish up this book. When Ephesians 1, I mean 4, verses 1 through 6, when you find it, let me hear you say amen. All right, we've got a few people who haven't found it yet. When you get it, let me hear you say amen. All right, Ephesians 4, 1 through 6. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. There's one Lord and one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask your blessings now upon our time that we know that the enemy would seek to take the implanted words of the Lord from our hearts, that it might not bear fruit. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would do war in the heavenly places right now, that your word might fall upon soft hearts and clear ears and clear minds, that it might bear fruit now and forevermore. Would you be pleased to speak through your servant? I thank you for grace and mercy, not in theory, but grace and mercy that you extend to those who proclaim the excellencies of your word. We know far more than what we live, and yet you're faithful and kind to speak through broken men and women. And so I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would speak through your servant for the glory of Christ. Amen. In Greek mythology, and I want to preface this with it's mythology, so little kids, this is not truth. It's mythology, right? In Greek mythology, there is a man, or was a man, by the name of uh, Achilles, and he was the son of Peleus and Thetis. And it was prophesied that he would be a mighty warrior, a valiant man, even more famous than his father. And his mother wanted to make him invincible, even immortal. And so she took him and she dipped him as a child into uh, the river of immortality. And there was one small problem. She held him by his Achilles and dipped his entire body into the river of immortality. But there was one part of his body that did not get dipped. And of course, it was the Achilles. And he would go on to do mighty and great things. And he would win wars and he would be invincible. But one day he would be killed because he was shot with an arrow in that one place, the back of his heel. And the mighty Achilles was destroyed. I mention that because I think what Paul is getting at this morning is something of that nature. That he really has grand and high views about the church and what the gospel will do in the hearts and lives of his people. And yet he also knows that there is this Achilles heel of the church. And that Achilles heel is unity. That for all the great things that God might do through the church and in the church, 
for all the, the, the great things. I mean, he's going to unpack some beautiful things that the gospel will do when it comes into the lives of people. It'll make you better husbands. The gospel will do that. It'll make you better children. The gospel will do that. It'll make you better wives. The gospel will do that. It'll make you better bosses. It'll make you better employers. It'll make you better employees. It will make you use alcohol with wisdom. It will uh, compel you to use your tongue to build people up as opposed to tear them down. The gospel will get in there and do a mighty work. And yet, right, the first thing when Paul comes out of the gate with this is what I want your life to look like. He does not talk about Satan and demonic warfare, which comes later in Ephesians. He does not talk about a husband or a wife or a kid or an employer. The first thing out of the gates when he moves, remember Ephesians 4, Ephesians 1 through 3, God saved you. Ephesians 4 through 6, now go walk it out. The first thing he says that we need to walk out is unity. It's as if he is saying, the greatest threat to the church, it isn't Satan. The greatest threat to the church, it isn't men or women who are addicted. The greatest threat to the church, it isn't bad husbands. The greatest threat to the church, it isn't bad kids. The greatest threat to the church, it isn't people who come and sit on the pew. The greatest threat to the church is the church. In other words, what Paul is saying is if the church is not united, and it becomes divided and splintered and it backbites and it, it argues with one another and it pulls away from one another, you can hang it up. You're not going to have women to disciple. You're not going to have men to disciple. You're not going to have marriages to change. You're not going to have Satan. What does he need to do if the church kills itself from the inside out? And so the first thing out of the gate of I want you to walk it out, he says, I want you to walk in unity. That's the first thing of all the list of things that come to us in Ephesians 4 through 6. The first thing he says is unity. Be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. That if we're not careful, disunity will be the Achilles heel of the church. And so I want us to look at this morning is the important work of unity. And then I want us to think through what makes unity so difficult. I want to finish us up with Where's the power for and the power of unity? Those three points, if you want to write them down. The first thing, this important work of unity. Now, when I say that unity is a work, I don't want you to lose what Paul has said in Ephesians 2. He says, you were saved by grace and not by works that no man might boast. So we get that. And right after that verse, he says, but we are his workmanship recreated in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so we believe, according to Ephesians 1, that God chose his people in Christ before the foundations of the world. This is sovereign grace, sovereign mercy, sovereign love. But we also believe that in choosing his people, God also before time laid out a chart of good works that the church would walk into. And the question that we have to ask is, well, what are the good works that Paul mentions in Ephesians 2? Well, Paul says, I'm going to tell you. Ephesians 4 through 6, I'm telling you the good works that are to be a part of the church. And so when he brings up this idea of unity, it is in step with the gospel. 
He says, be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. That's in verse three. Now, what does he mean when he says uh, unity? What, what does he not mean? So in college, I pledge a fraternity. And I promise you, if you're Greek, I'm not going to give away any of the, the stuff that we're not supposed to talk about. Right. But in, in college, we, we went to what we would call shop and you, you would go to shop. And it's when all the pledges would get together and we would go to shop. And here's the thing. We had to have the same pair of shoes on, same brand, same color. We had to have the same color socks on, same brand, same color. We had to find the, the acid and the stonewash Wrangler jeans from Walmart, right? Same brand, same color. You had to have the, the same belt. Our belt had to be the same. We had to have the same T-shirt under the sweatshirt, and the sweatshirt we had had to be the same, and we all had to cut off all of our facial hair, and we had to have the same amount of money in our pockets wherever we went around campus, and then when we saw the big brother, we had to greet them the same way, and when we recounted the history of our organization, you had to say it at the same cadence, right? And if you stutter, it was over, right? You just, you just messed the line up, but here's the thing. Uniformity. You're different. And throw out all differences for the sake of sameness. You're going to walk the same, dress the same way. You're going to look the same and talk the same and wear the same brand. That their goal was to bring about uniformity where we're conformed to this image. Now, here's the thing. When we read Ephesians, if we think that that's what Paul is recommending to the church, that you must check your diversity at the door and leave it over there, and you must become the same. That is uniformity. That is not unity. Now, we know that that's what Paul is not after because he says that, that, that the gospel is for the Greek and the Jew, that there was no such thing as the Greek church and the Jewish church. In Paul's mind, you're becoming one in Christ Jesus. You are one, and yet you're still diverse. That when, when John sees the image of, of, of the new heavens and the new earth, he says, I see people from every nation and every tribe, and every tongue, and every language, right? You get this idea that heaven is diverse. There's going to be immense diversity in heaven, right? That God is not calling us to check our culture, or our vocabulary, or what books we read. I mean, yeah, well, some of the books we read, right? But he, he doesn't say, hey, your sermon has to be this many words, and you have to quote all of these sources. If you quote extra sources that aren't these guys, it's not a good sermon. You know, like, where, where do we get that from? That's what, not what Paul means. It, it, we know it because Trinity, right? Tri-unity. When we believe in the doctrine of the Trinity, we are embracing a reality that here, O Israel, there is one God and one God alone, right? But in, in the oneness of our triune God, there is diversity, that the father chooses his people that he will call to himself before the foundations of the world. That Jesus Christ didn't do that. Jesus Christ did not conceive himself in the womb of the, of the Virgin Mary. The Holy Spirit did that. That Jesus, the, the father did not go on a cross for you. The son did that. And so what you see in the Trinity is one God distinct in persons, and they're working together, though they're different. And Jesus would say things like, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He is not saying we are identical. What he's saying is, in our essence, 
and deity. There is nothing in me that's not in my father. You see, in our doctrine of the Trinity, we are embracing unity and diversity. And so when Paul is calling the church to unity, he is not calling black people to check black culture at the door. He's not calling white people to check white culture at the door. He's not calling us to check all the things that God, God put me in black skin. He's not calling me to check that at the door. He's not calling me to check my experiences at the door to become some dude in this church. You get it? But we do have unity around some things. And he's saying the things that we have unity around, they make us one. Now, the question that we have to ask is, what are the things that makes us one, that we build unity around? Because Paul's definition of unity is this. There is agreement and oneness around essential things. And there is diversity around secondary things. Oneness around what God says ultimately matters and diversity around secondary things. Now, what are the things that matter to the Lord? I'm glad you asked because Paul says it. Look at what he says in verse four. There is one body. There is one spirit. There is one hope. There is one Lord. There is one faith. There is one baptism. There is one God and Father overall. In other words, he tells us what we have oneness around. We have oneness around the body. We believe that that people from every nation, tribe and tongue and class and culture, that if they have professed faith in Christ and bow the knee to the Lord Jesus, they are a part of the one body, the one church. We believe in that. We believe in one spirit. The Holy Spirit is not different. That the Holy Spirit that's in me, it's in Miss Diane, right? You get that? That the Holy Spirit that's in me, it's in my brothers and sisters in Ethiopia that we got to go visit about three years ago. And I'm telling you, they're grieving over the same sin I'm grieving over. They're looking at their world through the same lens I'm looking at the world through. They're reading the same scripture and worshiping the same Jesus because the same spirit that's in me right here is also at work there. You get it? One spirit. It's not a secondary spirit that God gives. It's one Holy Spirit that he gives to his people. One hope. There is no there is no course. There is no heaven for gangsters. Right. Like this, this separate heaven over here that what the scriptures say that we're all moving to the same hope, the same end. If there's faith in Christ, we're going home together to be with Jesus and he will fight sin and defeat it finally. And we will be restored and glorified and we will be with him forever. And all roads lead there. One hope. It says that there is, is, is one baptism, right? That, that, that there's one Lord, one Savior, one person, one name given amongst men and women by which we must be saved. And the name is Jesus. And the work on the cross is sufficient that he is king and leader in heaven of Lord and uh, king of heaven and earth. That there's one faith, that the way to experience all of his blessings is by faith. It's turning from ourselves and turning to Christ. This is one faith resting in Christ alone. There's one baptism. It's covenant sign. 
It's the reason if you were if you were baptized in a Baptist church or another church, it's the reason we don't rebaptize you here. Redeemer does not have the market on a right baptism. If you were baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and you profess faith in Christ, you do not get rebaptized when you come into our fellowship. You get that? There's one God and Father overall. This is his creative plan from the beginning to build this household where he will invite people from every nation, tribe, and tongue to communion with himself. That's where our unity lies, around those seven pillars. What a beautiful picture of the gospel. One body, right? One church. One hope. We're going the same place. One Lord and Savior. That we're in the family the same way. Doesn't matter how much money you have. Doesn't matter how long you've been a believer. That you are in the family, not by your works, not by your privilege, but by grace alone and faith alone and Christ alone. And therefore, we have that in common. We know what it means to not trust self, but to trust Christ. Right. That's what we're united around. Those seven pillars. Right. But here's the difficulty of unity. And I think the fact that Paul actually has to command this is letting us know that they're struggling with it. Right. If you know anything about Genesis 3, when Adam fell and Eve fell, that one of the curses was, was that their work would be cursed. That Adam would, would work the ground by the sweat of his brow, that, that he would plant something and thorns and thistles would start to grow up. And, and, and the Lord was kind, right? Adam could work that and, 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 and weed the garden and, and push back thorns. But the fact of the matter is his work was more complicated. It was more difficult. And here's the thing I want you to remember that the effects of the fall, they still stand right now. That so when God calls us to the work of unity, you got to also remember that there are going to be thorns and thistles that grow up. It's going to be easier said than done. And that's why Paul is commanding it in the text. Now, what makes unity so difficult? I think one of the reasons it's hard is because it's in our nature to exalt secondary things to a level that they were never intended to be. In other words, if you if you go back one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father, uh, one body, if you, one hope, if you put those seven things on the table and then you say, okay, these are secondary things around here, right? Like, how do you get baptized? Who do you baptize? Okay. I, I remember when I first became a believer, I was, it was a, another African-American lady in my department and she had been a believer for 10 years. And I remember telling her I was a new Christian. She gave me books to read and she says, hey, 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 come here. Have you, have you been baptized in the spirit? And I'm just like, what is that, right? And so she's like, hey, come to my office. And so, I, and I, I love her. Like, she was a, a godly boss. And she starts to read stuff from Acts about me needing to speak in tongues. And I'm like, Miss Janet, I don't, I don't got the tongues. Like, I, I don't have it, right? <laughs> and so Miss Janet, like, called me to her office. And, like, we're in her office. She closed the door. And she, she put her hand on my head. And she said, well, baby, I'm going to pray that you can become a real Christian. And Miss Janet, like, put put her hands on my head and I just let her pray for me because I was a new Christian. I didn't know. So I'm like, okay, I need to speak in tongues. I'm sitting there trying to think and trying to make stuff come out. 
like it, it wouldn't come out. And Miss Janet just kept there praying. I couldn't even, I, I didn't even know what Miss Janet was saying. I could not understand it. But she was just so bent on making me speak in tongues. And I couldn't. I'm like, Miss Janet, I can't do it, right? <laughs> well, baby, you will be saved one day. I'm like, whoa. <laughs> like, what do you mean I'm going to be saved one day, right? And so I walked out of there like, man, I'm not a Christian. You know, but like, hey, we believe in the Holy Spirit. But here's the thing. She made the measure of how he must show up in my life. She put the measure of his showing up on the table and says it has to be in tongues. You get it? And that's not true. That's human nature. We will all, if we're really, really honest, try to put things on the table and make it an essential. It's just human nature. We will say, hey, God is the God of this political party. And if you are a real Christian, you must vote this way. We will do it. It's really subtle and we will do it and we'll slide that onto the table. We'll slide baptism and the, not baptism. It needs to be up there. But it's the reason why if, if you're Baptist and you don't feel convinced from the scriptures that there's a covenantal framework that we think our children need to be baptized, it's the reason you will never hear me say you're wrong and you must baptize your children. You see, we can have agreement on this idea that baptism is important, but the expression of it, if it were up to me, I would have a Duncan booth back here because some of y'all come out of the Baptist church and this little sprinkling stuff you don't like, you want to be fully submerged. If I could do it and have it my way and be king for a day, I'll give you options, right? Take <laughs> Take your pick. But that's, that's what we got, and that's what, you know, we're going we're gonna to roll with it, you know? But here's the thing, like, the mode of baptism, who we baptize, the Scriptures, does, it does not give us more information than that. And here's what we always do. If we're not careful, we will put things up here like, hey, if, it's, if they're really worshiping, they got to sing five hymns in a worship service. And you got to have a pipe organ, right? Pipe organ and worship, they go hand in hand. And no drums. You cannot have drums. That's not real worship, right? Or it goes the other way. Man, why are we singing these hymns? Can we just kind of update them a little bit? And we're not really worshiping because nobody's standing up and praising the Lord. That's, that's not real worship. Here's the thing. We all do this. We put these things on the table and make non-essentials essentials. And here's the thing. I'm not saying the non-essentials are not important. They are important. Who you vote for, it matters. You as a parent wrestling through, if you baptize your children, that matters. Stand before the Lord and pray and work on it. But here's the thing. We cannot and must not think that secondary things can be put on this table. Jesus is like a punter. He says, no, no, you don't put those things up here. This is, these are the pillars of the church. This is what you have real unity around. These seven things. You get it? That makes it hard, though, because there's something in all of our hearts that wants to push our thing onto the table. And Jesus says, no, this is my table. You get it? I think what can also make unity hard is because you have some people who worship the idea of unity. But what they do is they actually take the seven things and they want to push something off the table. And then they start to put these seven pillars against one another. And you hear this a lot. Can't we all just get along? 
The, the, the all roads, you worship your God and you worship your God and you worship your God. And, and your Bible says it. the God is a God and he's in all and the God, a father of all. Right. So therefore, this fatherhood, this household of God, the, the door is wide open. And so they think, hey, just come as you are. And what we're saying is, look, you got to be really careful. Those pillars aren't pointing the guns at each other. The same fatherhood of God that matters it also says it matters how you come. You come to this table through faith alone in Christ alone. And if you think the love of God is, is against the truth of God and is against the son of God, and is against needing faith and repenting from your sins, then what you're doing is you're turning these essentials against one another. And Paul says, no, you can't do it. You cannot come into the fatherhood of God, into the church without faith. And faith is in who? It's in Jesus Christ. If you try to move any of those seven things off the table, you don't have unity. You have a gathering. And so I think the world does that in its pursuit of unity. It tries to move things off the table. And I think it's easy, right? It's easy for us in the church or some in the church to say, man, I get it, man. I'm going to the same place. I got hope in Christ. I'm, I, I got faith in Christ. I believe in the fatherhood of God. I believe in all these things. But then when you get down here to this last pillar about one of the pillars being the church and the body of Christ, and you say, hey, wait a minute, I can have these other six and not be a part of the body. You're in sin. Because those seven pillars, they stay together. And so if your theology says you can have God and faith and hope and the spirit without needing to be in the body of Christ. You're unorthodox. They go together. So we don't just want to put new things that shouldn't be on the table, on the table. If you're not careful, you will want to put things off the table that need to stay on the table. The other reason I think unity can be difficult is because we think that it's gone on account of how I feel. You see, when I hear the word unity, I instantly think no tension, no conflict, no differences of opinion. And we assume that when there is tension or conflict or difference of opinion, that we can't be united. And this simply isn't true. Like, I feel it. I've been here two years. And, and one of the things that I think is, and this is me talking to the church. I don't care about who's watching it on TV. This is about me thinking about this local expression of the body of Christ. One of the greatest dangers that I think we're up against right now is what Martin Luther King wrote about. If you, if you read his writings, especially the, the, the letter from the Birmingham jail, if you, he's gonna move in these three categories. He's not gonna use the language, but he's gonna move in these categories, right? That it's the same thing Tim Keller has written about, Leslie Newbegin has written about, and Gordon Smith, who's president of Amro Seminary in Canada, they're, they're all expressing the same thing. They're, they're, and Keller uses this language here. He said, if it, one of the greatest threats to the church, it's these three rising camps within the church. He uses the term a doctrinalist, so the root word is doctrine, the pietist, the root word is piety. And the culturalist, the root word is culture. And uh, Gordon Smith uses evangelical as the doctrinal category. 
He uses sacramental as the pietistic category, and he uses Pentecostal as the culturalist category. Go read Letter from a Birmingham Jail, and you'll start to see King moving through these same categories. But let's throw out those terms. I know they're kind of big. I think what they're getting at is within the church, there are people who are head-driven. Head, right? Heart and hands, right? That the doctrinalist person is a head person, theological precision, right doctrine. And that's, there's a place for that. And the heart people, right, the pietistic people, we're, we're, we're deep feelers, experiences of truth. We're worshipers with, with emotions and feelings. And hand people, right, they embrace a religion that compels them to do something and change the culture and systems around them, that that's what's happening. So think about this term, the, the service this morning, that some of you, you come here and you instantly look for old hymns. If that's you, you're probably a doctrinalist because you want a hymn that will unpack doctrine, doctrine, doctrine. And then some of you, when you hear your presence is heaven for me, you don't know what to do with that because that's getting more emotive. That's more feeling and experience and truth. And some of you come in here and you, you don't want to owe him. You want to rewrite an owe him to new music. You want to kind of make it relevant to our day and age. You're a culturalist, right? That I think that's what happens in the church, that within a church, you got these three camps that will raise up. And what Keller says, if we're not careful, these three camps will kill a church. Because here's what happens. If you're a doctrine person, doctrine and precision matters, then you look at the other two camps with suspicion. That you're listening for theological precision. You're waiting for somebody to trip up and say the wrong thing, right? That, 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 that you, you, you look at people who are wanting to transform culture and move by the gospel and you read their writings. But I don't hear words of justification by faith alone and Christ alone. What are they marching for? You look at people who are emotive and, 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 and moving towards experiencing Jesus and all of their feelings. He said, look, baby. What, what, so what about feelings? It's about faith, right? You get it? So you dis divorce experiencing Jesus from, from feeling and experiencing him. And then the people who are pietistic, who have this kind of faith, who experience, you're looking at, at the doctrinalist people like, man, you are just mean. All that doctrine you got, it, you're not even pleasant to be around. I don't want to be around you. Your doctrine is not making you different. You're stiff and you're stuck up, right? And they're looking at the people over here who are marching and for just social justice, they don't even know why they're doing it. They're just doing it. They're just getting on the bandwagon. And then you got the, the, the culturalist people or the hand people. They're looking at the doctrinalist people like you're sizing me up. You're going to make sure I, I dot every I and cross every tittle. I know you're doing it. And they're looking at these people over here, the pietistic people. Oh, you just want your coffee. And you just want to sit on the couch and snuggle and read your Bible and post on Instagram about you and Jesus all in the fields. You get it? That's what happens, right? And what happens is when this other camp isn't becoming like I think Christianity ought to be expressed, then you leave. Man, I'm a hand person. I can't see all this injustice and not do anything about it. I'm out, and I'm going to find somewhere we're going to be about it. Well, guess what you leave behind? You leave behind orthodoxy.
and you leave behind experiencing Christ. And then you got doctrinalist people. I want to go somewhere where all we talk about is doctrine. Okay, that's cool. I'm going to go to this church over here, and all we're going to do is talk about doctrine. And guess what? It's all heady, and you're not experiencing Christ, and you're not being compelled to go and do something. And then emotional people, right? I want to go to a church, and we sing these hymns that talk about me and Jesus and all of my feelings. That's good, but you don't have rails of orthodoxy to keep you there. You get it? And so what happens in the end is we start throwing bombs and grenades at people who are expressing orthodoxy in different ways, and Satan is up here laughing at the church because he doesn't even need to show up and do nothing because we're killing each other. We're on the same team. We're after the same ends. We love the same Lord. We believe in the same gospel, but it is expressed differently. And so we're throwing grenades. Boop, boop, boop. There you go. I heard you, little buddy. (laughs) And if we're not careful, you size people up. You create this culture where you're walking on eggshells. This culture of haughtiness. And more importantly, we, we, Jesus prayed, Father, make them one as we are one, that the world might know you sent me. You get it? That our oneness is not just about us. It's about imaging the oneness of God. Diversity around unity. It points people to a greater diversity around unity. And so we Christians end up hurting our witness and destroying and marring the Trinity. What would you think if the Father and the Son and the Spirit are battling against each other who's right? You would look at that and think chaos, chaos, chaos. And here's what Paul is saying. Our unity images something bigger than us. And so before you go out there and write this thing, my letter to my pietistic friends, my letter to my culturalist friends, my letter to my doctrinalist friends, you had better run this by the cross and run this through the gospel and run your heart through that. Look, there are ways and appropriate times to disagree. There are. But if we're disagreeing over minor things, got a problem. So where's the power for and the blessing of unity? Thankfully, Paul knows that the church will not be divided. It will work through hard times. And just because things are hard, it does not mean we can't be unified. I never forget when my wife and I first got married, we moved into the house that was right next door. And we had our big first blow up. It was like bad. It was so bad, I thought Steve and Mike and, and Dina would hear us. It was like really bad. I mean, we were just really, really like going at each other. It was loud. And, and my family, and this is part of probably because of my grandmother, the way, you know, when you had tension in the family, you just alienated and isolated, right? And so if, if we argue and don't see eye to eye, then what my granny, and I love my granny, what, what she would do is you would just feel isolated that you, you would get the silent treatment, you would get the cold shoulder. 
And so I didn't know nothing about like genogram work and how my family of origin, I bring these mechanisms with dealing with conflict into this new marriage. And so I thought that's how everybody deal with anger. When you make me upset and we disagree, I'm going to give you the silent treatment. I'm not going to talk to you. I'm not going to eat dinner at the same time as you. I'm not going to sleep in the same room with you. I'm going to sit on my couch and, and be silent. And so I pulled this on my wife, right? Just like, all right, I'm going to show her. I'm going to show her, you know. Well, that ain't how my wife was raised. And she's like, hey, you're not going to come get in the bed? I'm like, we're mad at each other. We can still sleep next to each other. What are you talking about, you know? And so I, I sulk, and I'm, I'm going to show her she's wrong. And so I end up going in the bed, and I turn my back away from her. I'm still going to show her she's wrong. And my wife gently kind of puts her arm around me. And you know what she was communicating? That the bond of covenant marriage, it can stay intact even through hard times. We might be angry and things might be hard, but our covenant marriage, that bond is so strong that we can lay down next to each other. And I want to say that to us in these three camps. You're going to lose sleep and it might be hard to tolerate one another, but you got to know the covenant bond that has been secured in Christ. We can lay down and we can rest next to each other. Now, where's the power? Where's the power for this? It's not that God will do something. Paul says it. He says that I'm convinced that God is able to do far more abundantly than we ask or think according to the power at work within us. He just prayed that it's not just that Paul has this forward gaze. He also has this backwards gaze. It isn't just that God will keep us unified. Paul says God has already made us one. If you want to underline one word in this passage, the most important word is in verse three. He says, be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit. Notice what he does not say. He does not say be eager to muster up the unity. He says maintain it. He doesn't say create the unity of the spirit. He says continue in it. He doesn't say start it. He says stay unified. That's a big difference. When we were little, that same granny used to have some property out on, near Ferris Street. And my dad and me and my brother would go cut the lots and cut our yard. And my brother and I were really little. And so my dad would like bend over and, and pick up the lawnmower and put it in the back of the station wagon. Like I couldn't pick, we couldn't pick it up. And we couldn't pour gas in the lawnmower because we would just spill gas all over the grass. And so my dad would pour the grass in the lawnmower. And then when we, we didn't have enough strength to crank the lawnmower, try, try to get your six-year-old son to crank up your lawnmower. He just, he can't do it. And so my dad would like crank it up. In other words, my dad would get the lawnmower and put it in the car. My dad would gas it up and put it in the car. When it got time to cut the grass, my dad would crank it up and all we had to do was row in the line. That's it. He did all the hard work. The hard work of getting us to cut the grass was not done by us. All we had to do, just keep it in the line, son. Just, just row this line and turn it around. You get the image? The work was too hard for me and my brother to do. But we all we had to do was maintain what my father started. That's what Jesus is saying to you when it comes to unity, Christian. The hard work of unity has been done. He's calling us to maintain it 
not created. Where was the hard work of unity done, Christian? You know it was the cross. And on the cross of Christ, all of you heady people, and all of you heart people, and all of you hand people, you got to look at each other and say that all of their sins have been atoned for on the cross of Christ, all of them. If they don't get it, okay, they'll come to it. All of our sins have been paid for on the cross that we have been through Jesus reconciled to the Father and we are children. We are children. If we are children, then we are family. We're heirs. We're co-heirs with Christ in the same household. We've traveled the same way. And so what Jesus is saying is the hard work of unity has been accomplished, and it wasn't uniting man to man. The hard work of unity was uniting man to God, that God has united us to his son and to himself, and therefore we have it with one another. You get it? That's where our unity begins. It begins at the cross. It was real. And we look up and see, man, there are other people here just like me and not like me. But here's the question. How do we maintain it? Because that's what he says. He says it. I love what Peter O'Brien says about these words with humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love. He says, this is how. You maintain the unity. All of those words, they contribute to the how. In other words, how do we maintain the unity that has been won by Christ? It's going to take effort. A lot of our Bibles say be eager to maintain the unity, but a lot of translations will also say make every effort to maintain unity. In other words, it's going to be work. Work. It says, bear with one another in love, bearing with one another. Disunity is ultimately about real people and not ideas or causes. He says, bear with each other, endure with one another, stay at it. Unity in the church is a marathon and not a sprint. If we love people instead of love being right, we will endure. You know, Jesus uses the same word to his disciples. He says, how long must I endure with you? You know how he answers that question? Forever. Forever. That's why Paul says patience, long suffering, not a short fuse ready to blow at any moment, but being long fused. How long? Forever. Gentleness, tenderness, a soft word turns away wrath. Humility, counting others better than ourselves, choosing to be lower, sacrificing our need to be right. That where does this kind of life come from where we can be gentle and patient and kind and understanding? Where does this come from? It comes from realizing people that this is how Christ is with us. That if, if your view is that Jesus is over you, ready to stomp you and pounce on you, you will not be gentle with people. 
If your view is that Jesus is over you saying, can't you just get right, just do right? And his posture towards you is not that of I am tender and lowly at heart and you will find rest for your souls. If your vision of Jesus is not cross-centered, if it is not tender and kind and patient, if you think that Jesus is not being patient with you, if he is not correcting you in love, if we don't receive this type of love from Christ, we will not give it. And so what Paul is saying, the real problem with division in the church is we divorce what we should be receiving from Christ and we're not giving that to others. That's where division creeps in at right there. When we stop giving what we're receiving in the Lord Jesus. This is the power for this. It's the cross that every time we want to be angry and pull away, every time we want to let somebody know how we feel and speak our mind, every time we want to slide into somebody's direct message and, and question if they're Christians, if we're agreeing on the seven essentials, be gracious, be kind, be tender. Be understanding, because that is how the Lord Jesus is with his people. That when we behave this way and maintain the unity that Christ has won for us, he is glorified. He prayed for this. That when we maintain this unity, that we make Jesus non-ignorable to a world who is tired of choosing sides. That when the world sees our unity, our peace and our humility and our love and our affection and our bearing with one another, they get to see something different. It makes Jesus non-ignorable. That when we make our fellowship life-giving and we're not sizing people up to make them get in our camp, people are free to be who they are in Christ. And beloved, it's a great and healthy thing for us to be, to be concerned about right doctrine. It's a right and healthy thing for us to be concerned about a faith that affects our hearts and changes our feelings that we can feel and experience. Beloved, it's good when we're pulled by people to think about issues of justice and rightness in our society. The gospel goes there and it speaks there too. We are better together, united around the cross than we are separated into our little camps. This is why I love the last line in our reflection quote. Unity in essentials, liberty in non-essentials, and in all dealings with all people, love. We're commanded to pursue unity in the church. It's hard, ignoring it is deadly. We've been called to maintain it, not create it, continue it, not start it. A unified church, it images God, it strengthens our affection for one another, and it makes Jesus non-ignorable to a watching world. Let's pray. Our Father, our hope and our prayer is that you would give us immense unity, not just in the ideals, not just in what you have accomplished on the cross for us that is real, but I pray that we would also experience that and feel that. May this be a place where we love one another, are tender with one another, are patient with one another, that we count one another better than ourselves, 
even as you have loved us in Jesus. I pray this for Christ's sake and for the good of your church. Amen.